Good morning, good morning. Welcome to, to Faith this, this morning. We're winding into, winding down, I guess, uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, our message series on the Gospel of Mark, the uh, story of Christ, is go through the, uh, Mark the Evangelist. And um, so it's a, it's a gospel about discipleship, about discipleship, making disciples. It's, we've seen Jesus call to discipleship, to be a follower of Christ. We've seen um, the call to make disciples, to help others follow Christ. We've seen uh, his authority, the authority of Christ over sickness and over the forces of nature and over the powers of the evil one, the demoniac. We've seen the failures of imperfect people like the disciples and the patience of a perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've, we've seen the importance of helping one another, serving one another, and being used by Jesus to make disciples. Ne- next Friday, we have the Good Friday service. I trust you'll make that part of your, your week's schedule. We have the uh, next Sunday, the, the re- Resurrection Morning Celebration. We have invitation cards. Again, a reminder that uh, it's a great time to invite someone who doesn't normally go to church but may think about going to hear about this Jesus. Today is a week before that, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as it's very familiar to many of us, the scene of Jesus marching swiftly towards Jerusalem. Uh, the Passover celebration is approaching. And so there are many, many people who are heading there also with Jesus and the disciples. In fact, this is not the first time that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem during Passover season. He does this every year <laughs> in his ministry. And, um, but this time's unique. This time's pretty different. This will be the last time he goes to Jerusalem with his disciples. This time he will become the Passover lamb for them and for all who the Father calls. He will do the ultimate act of sacrifice by dying for sinners on a cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The ultimate act of sacrifice. The ultimate act of service. Let's pause now and see how this unfolds in this interesting passage. This conversation that he has with his team of people. We, look, we heard the, the triumphal entry passage in Mark. From Mark chapter 11 verses 1 to 11. Right before that in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45, let's listen to this conversation that he had with his disciples before Palm Sunday, starting at verse 32. On the overhead, you see the ESV translation. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See? We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. 
When the ten heard it, they began, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's word. My title is simple. Jesus, our great king. Jesus, our great king. This Palm Sunday passage is often called the triumphal entry. He enters triumphantly into Jerusalem. Great triumph as the crowds cried, Hosanna. He entered on a donkey. And, and the question, when was the last time you saw a donkey? It's been a long time for me. It's not easy for us to comprehend the implications of this in our 21st century world. Often, when you're driving, you see a stretched limo go past you, or, and you say, wow, that's interesting. It's a different kind of vehicle. Uh, people often rent limos for big events, um, senior proms or weddings. Or, 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 it, it, it used to be times where, where limos were only for the rich and famous, but it doesn't seem that that's true anymore. It, now it's for wannabe rich and famous. I don't know. People who, who want to wanna, wanna look like they're rich and famous will rent limousines. I don't know. The, the ancient kings had, had an instinct when they rode into parades to have a, a, an ancient limo. Beautiful horses, beautiful uh, um, stallions and, and, and horses that would parade into town. Uh, sometimes they'd be on a chariot dri that would be um, ridden by, driven by a beautiful horse, beautiful majestic horse. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus decided not to do that. He decided to not find a limo, but to find a pickup truck. And the folk just couldn't understand why. They didn't grasp why, because they didn't grasp his mission, you see. Yes, he talked about the kingdom of God. He never flinched from explaining many times what the kingdom was about in parables and, and directly and through miracles and signs and through encounters of power, but they didn't get it. Not even his closest friends, the disciples got it yet. And so on Palm Sunday, the crowds cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. But on Friday, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. Sad to say, they never truly understood him or his mission. They had incorrect messianic aspirations and understandings. Well, let's not be too tough on them, folks. We don't have proper notions of Jesus ourselves. Don't we try to squeeze him into our mold rather than let him be almighty God, all wise God, the sovereign, compassionate king that he claims to be in the word of God and who we found him to be? Don't we still prefer a Messiah who meets our needs on our timetable and our schedule? Don't we prefer a Messiah who immediately answers our, all of our prayers exactly as we utter them? Because obviously we're all wise and know the best way that things ought to happen in our lives, don't we? Now, we would rather create a Messiah in our own image 
rather than let God be God. The Messiah who saves, who heals according to his good pleasure and his good will. He understands what we fail to grasp. That he first must die for his people so that he might reign for them, in them, and through them. Jesus is going to make a connection between his great messianic mission coming to this world to save his people by dying and the need that all of us possess to be servants as well, fulfilling his mission in our lives to be servants. We, let's face it, we have a very low view of servanthood, don't we? Don't we? We have a wrong view of what it means to be great. To be great is to be served, not to serve. We're all on a power trip of some sort. In our passage today, Jesus speaks into that. And then, several days later, on Good Friday, he'll speak even more decisively through his action of the ultimate service. In his death, Jesus demonstrates for us what true greatness looks like. What true greatness looks like. And the truly great one is the one who serves. This passage, we're going to look first at the competition for greatness, this sad competition that the disciples have. Second, the true meaning of greatness that Jesus unfolds for them and for us. And then we're going to look briefly at the ultimate act of greatness as he served us on the cross. First, the sad competition, verses 35 to 41, as we look into that passage. The conversation begins, notice the question. Notice how childish the question seems. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It sounds like a child. Mommy, Daddy, will you just do anything for me? Parents, I'm sure you've heard that before. The audacity of that question. Well, Jesus tells us how to respond when you hear that question. Say, honey, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? They give an honest reply. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They understood something of the glory of the Son of Man coming. They understood something of that. And they knew that there'd be thrones somehow connected with that, and they wanted in. So here you see here something about their assumptions about Jesus and therefore about themselves. They've made some assumptions. They desire power, prestige, authority, honor, and glory. These are things they see in Jesus and they want them for themselves. And they're thinking that, that these are in their immediate futures. As long as they just stay close to Jesus, close to the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Messianic Son of Man, that Daniel predicted about. Stay close to him and you'll have those things. Jesus' response, you, you, you don't know what you're asking, guys. <laughs> are you able to drink the cup that I drink? We baptize with the baptism with which I'm baptized? So he, he asked that, that, that question goes on. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. You know, there's a tension there in those couple of verses. There's a, there's a tension that you might not notice. He says, yeah, there's, a, there's, there's, some exper- there's an experience you have to have of, 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 of drinking the cup and undergoing the baptism. It seems he's talking about difficulty, pain, affliction, hard times, drinking the cup of, of pain and, and, and being identified with, with, uh, with, with Christ in his baptism of suffering. Reminds us of Mark chapter 8. He tells them, to, tells them to take up the cross and follow me. Now, their cross was not like his cross. 
He died uniquely on a cross for our sins, right? But he tells us to take up our cross. He's not asking us to die for anybody's sins. It's a different type of cross. And likewise, it's a different kind of baptism. Just kind of cup, the cup. But, but, they, but, the, but they point to suffering and pain and affliction and hard times and difficulties. And he tells them that that, that is part of the experience and preparation for, for having a, the, the authority and glory that they're looking for. So there's some experiences. But then on the other hand, here's the tension. He says, it's for those for whom it's been prepared. Where does that come from? That, that somehow there's a plan, a master plan of the sovereign God to place certain people in positions of authority and honor and glory. Interesting. Reminds me of the, the prophet Jeremiah, who we know answered the call to be a prophet, but in the first chapter, he says, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, you answered the call, Jeremiah, but God had a purpose in your life before you even, before you even were. So yes, this pl the places of authority beside the Lord Jesus is for those who experience the baptism and the suffering and the cup, drink the cup, but is also prepared. Now, no notice the reaction of, of, uh, in verse 41 of, of, the, of the, the remaining ten disciples. They began to be indignant at James and John. The spirit of envy rose up rather quickly. This, this probably made the other ten <laughs> indignant because, you know, they, they asked the question. They, they got to Jesus first. Maybe, that, maybe that's what's going on in their minds. The audacity of James and John to approach Jesus like that. They probably muttered to themselves. You know, you know, you know Matthew's gospel tells us that it was, it was James and John's mother that made the approach. They did it through their mother. And I can imagine the ten <laughs> muttering, if, if they're, so, they're the sons of thunder, they're so bold and thunderous, why did they send their mommy to do their dirty work? You can feel the, 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 the tension between the disciples who are, who, are, who are mad at James and John for getting to Jesus. But, you know, what's the motivation behind all this? What, what, what motivates people to want to serve? What motivates people to want to be great, to, find, to want greatness for themselves? God, no, God is always interested not only in, in what we do, but more importantly, what is driving us to do what we do. Have you, ever, have you learned that yet? It can be rather startling when you come to Jesus Christ as a babe in Christ. And in fact, it can even be a little depressing for a new Christian. I remember for me, when I came to understand the truth, that God was not only concerned about what I did, but why I did it. That, you know, see, because I, when I became a Christian, I thought that Christianity was just, you know, you were a sinner, you had broken God's law. Now Christ was in your life, and now you can keep God's law, so let's get at it. Let's keep God's law, Okay. That's about, as, that's about as deep as I got with it. So I got, okay, let me keep God's law. And then I found very quickly that I was a sinner still, and I had drives and, and, and a nature still that couldn't obey the law of God, and the frustration began to kick in. And that's, that's a normal pattern for many people. And, and then I learned that God wasn't just concerned about the fact that I wasn't keeping his law, but my heart wasn't right. <laughs> it got even deeper. Not only wasn't my behavior pleasing him, my heart needed to be fixed up. Have you learned that lesson yet? It can be depressing if you don't know that. If you, it can surprise you when you begin to walk with God and find that, that God is very much concerned lovingly to sanctify your heart. 
to, that you would have proper attitudes, proper motivations, proper drives, proper affections. And when you realize the depth of your sin, you realize that every day you have to submit your heart to the Holy Spirit, to Lord Jesus Christ. And it's every day. Every single day. Many people come to the place of realizing that they're, they're on earth for a purpose. And maybe some will only pursue merely being adequate in their calling, but many give themselves fervently to being the best they can be, to pursuing excellence, to pursuing greatness. And that's great. However, in your pursuit of excellence, pursuit of greatness, remember that all of us have mixed motives in our pursuits. All of us are sinners with mixed motivations in our pursuits. What are some of the mixed motivations? We're talking motivations. What's driving James and John here? Is it just they want to love Jesus, or is there some bad motivations going on? What are some of the motivations? Some people want to serve and be great for the pursuit of money. They follow, they follow after riches. Earlier in the passage, in chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation with a guy who's rich. He's very rich. In fact, his riches become a barrier between his relationship, wanting to know God. He comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to have eternal life? That's a great question. But his riches got in the way. His life was motivated by the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of things. And often it's not just the pursuit of things, but it's the pursuit of the things that, that riches can bring. And sometimes it's the pursuit of having people think that you've got things because you're rich, even if you're not rich. We call that credit cards. Anyway, that's another, that's another story. But some people sacrifice all kinds of things just to be rich. They work 20 hours a day, seven days a week to have more and more, sacrificing their body, sacrificing time with their family, sacrificing their own integrity by cutting corners on things to get ahead. Some people serve for the pursuit of a reputation or a good name. The public face is all that's important to them. Don't get me wrong, good reputation is not bad to have if it's consistent with the person's true character. See, true character is, is not just reputation. It's living consistently, living above reproach in public and private. Having a great reputation doesn't necessarily mean a person's a great person. And some people serve motivated to, to, to prove somebody that they can achieve. To prove to somebody. That's a big one, to, to prove to mommy or prove to daddy or brother or sister that they were wrong about you. Wanting to stick it to the teacher or that employee who fired you when you got that first job. Those are wrong motivations too. But those are strong motivations. Some even serve to prove to themselves that they are not what they suspect they might be. Well, we don't, we don't know totally the motivations of James and John, but we know they weren't good. <laughs> they weren't good. And, and they go to Jesus with this question, with this request, because somehow they want some authority, they want some power, they want, or to be perceived as having authority and power. And again, Matthew's gospel tells us, again, that their mother was the one who actually went to Jesus, approached them, Mrs. Zebedee. Was she, a, was, she a, was she behind us? Was she one of those hovering mothers? We don't know. Was Mr. Zebedee concerned? But, then, but he said, honey, go, go talk to Jesus. We don't know. Or was it simply James and John and their own ego and pride 
wanting to know if they were going to be the ones with the high positions. You understand that Jesus had three groups of four among the disciples, and they were part of the inner circle, those who were closest, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So they knew that they made the final four, okay? But maybe Peter and Andrew would be the ones who would sit at the right hand, the left hand. And so they have this conversation, or they sent their mother to have the conversation, and we see the indignation of the others who didn't have the conversation. Now, verses 42 to 44, true greatness. What does true greatness really look like? Jesus comes now. And said, he calls them together, knowing all that's going on. You know those who consider rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you. The seats on the right and the left hand that they had talked about are in their minds. Leadership positions, positions of power, influence, and authority. And so now Jesus draws a contrast, pointing out the unbiblical mindset of the pagan Gentile rulers. And he describes it in verse 42 lording it over their subjects rather than serving their subjects, those who are called to serve. He says, but whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. Jesus is calling them and he's calling us to a totally different understanding of great leadership. It's great servanthood that qualifies a person to be a great leader. So on the internet, and you gotta be careful what you find on the internet, but on the internet I saw a, a list of the, t- the 25 deadliest dictators of history. And I was a history major, so that kind of thing kind of interests me. And I, I, before I looked at it, I guess, I said, I bet a lot of them were in the 20th century. And to my surprise, yes, more than 15, more than 20, 23 of the top 25 deadliest dictators of history, according to this website, were from the 20th century. Now, of course, that's not a scientific survey, right? But it speaks to what we sense. It speaks to something that, that, that mankind has not learned much in history. Even in our day, the 21st century here, we, we, we see he- heavy-handed regimes brewing in our, in our world, North Korea and China. It, it's, it's quite interesting. Jesus has some strong statements here about, about, about pagan leadership, about the default nature of Gentile leaders. Some strong statements here. They're without God's revelation. And they need God's revelation. And, and because of that, there's a wrong understanding of what true greatness is and true servanthood is. The contrast to, to bad servanthood is, is good servant, good leadership. But I'm, I, I came back to the, the example of Dr. Martin Luther King. He's a great example of one who served sacrificially. He, he, you know, he was simply a Baptist preacher who answered the call in his generation to fight for justice. He didn't go to seminary to do that. He went to seminary to be a prophet, uh, to be a preacher, a faithful pastor like his father was. Just to have a church. But the times in which he lived moved him in a different direction, towards a different kind of, of, of ministry, a different kind of greatness. A couple of quotes by him. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Good quote. Another one. If I cannot do great things, I can do small things in a great way. Oh, what a, great, what a good quote. If I can't do great things, I can do small things in a great way. 
You know, in, 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 in a few weeks, a couple of us will be going to Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee for MLK 50. I can't believe it's been 50 years since he went to Memphis, Tennessee to assist the local trash collectors in their strike for better working conditions. And he never left the city alive. He understood service, though. And he called all people to greatness and to be treated with dignity as image bearers under God. One more quote. Not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great. Because greatness is determined by service, and anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. <laughs> you only need to have a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Martin Luther King. J Jesus has modeled the importance of serving for the 12 throughout three years of ministry and for us on the pages of Scripture. And for them, he will continue to do that this last week of, 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 before he dies. Remember, on, on Thursday night, at the Passover night, he washed their feet as they wondered who would do the slaves' work. Jesus took off his garments and, and, and washed their feet. And then the next day, he would do the ultimate service, the ultimate act on Friday afternoon, which gets us to our last point, the ultimate service by the Great One, Jesus Christ the cross, the ultimate act of sacrificial service. Verses 32 to 34, where this passage begin, Jesus, for the third time in Mark's gospel, clearly says why he was pressing towards Jerusalem again. But it wasn't like the other times. He was clear. It just didn't fit into their theological box. They knew the messianic plan. They had read their prophecy books i don't know they were traveling to jerusalem to experience glory with jesus the messiah but no he told them it was not to be seated in power but to suffer in pain it was not to reign over israel but to die for a people from every tribe and nation to purchase salvation for his father that's the kind of king he was as he goes into Jerusalem. And so we sing that song, Amazing Love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And you might remember on the cross on that Friday afternoon, that dark Friday, there were two men on his right hand and his left hand. Remember that? Not James or John or Peter or any of the disciples. They were two revolutionaries, insurrectionists, who, who both deserved to die. They participated in, in, in his sufferings in an interesting, unique way. One of them continued to mock Jesus. The other said, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave him the promise of all promises. Remember that? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He, you know, he didn't say, today, if you get baptized or something, you could be me in paradise. Or if you join the church, you could be me. He said, based upon the faith that's, that, that, that's working in your heart, today, I promise you, you will be with me in paradise. Not of works because of what he was doing right there on the cross. For that man on the right 
man to the left, for all who believe it. So verse 45, we see a very simple but profound insight to the cross. Even the Son of Man came not to, ser- to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Two things. The cross was a sacrificial service, and the cross was a ransom. A sacrificial service sa- served sacrificially. This week we saw another great example of sacrificial service in Southern Maryland at the Great Mills High School. There were three individuals now who have died. One was a shooter himself at that school, that incident on Tuesday morning. How, how he died is still a mystery, but we know that the school resource officer named Blaine Gaskill acted very heroically by confronting the shooter. Mr. Gaskell moved towards the danger and confronted the source of danger rather than running away from it. That's greatness. Risking for the sake of others. Sacrificing, serving for the help for the sake of others. Willing to even give up his body to protect others. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He sits and sets his face towards Jerusalem and despite the, the, the disaster and pain and danger that he knew was ahead of him. He attacks it. He goes into it. That we might have eternal life abundant life. It was a sacrificial service that Jesus did. The Son of Man came to, to, to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom. That's the language of commerce, the language of, of, of economics, of money, of payment. The payment of a price to purchase something for yourself. God purchased us. In the ancient world slaves would be auctioned. The picture in the New Testament is that we were per- purchased and rather than becoming in bondage to another, our new master sets us free. <laughs> free to be what we were created to be. You may be familiar with the word ransomware <laughs> in the computer age. Hackers go in and lock up a computer network insisting that there be payment made for the system to be unlocked. Ransomware. Ransom always deals with payment. You may be familiar with kidnapping situations. Good movie uh, uh, called Ransom. About a rich man, Mel Gibson, whose son is kidnapped. The ransom price was $2 million, I believe. It was gobs of money. And he knew that he didn't want to pay the price because even if he paid the price, they're probably going to kill his son. So he had interesting conversations with his wife when he told his wife he didn't want to pay the price. She said, what? Got pretty bloody, as all Mel Gibson movies tend to do. <laughs> and of course, Mel Gibson prevailed at the end. But when, look, when, when Jesus paid our ransom, it was also pretty bloody. As the writer of Hebrews said so clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. Jesus paid our ransom. Yes, it was pretty bloody, bloody, but he prevailed. And so because he prevailed, we prevail. And we are set free to be what God wants us to be and what we were created to be. Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into the city of the great king, the city of David, Jerusalem, to perform the ultimate act of greatness. He comes on a donkey, a donkey. David, King David, 1 Kings chapter 1, when David was about to hand over his kingdom, he gives it to his son, and he, he tells in that discussion, I want him to come into, this, into his, uh, to his reign on, on, on a mule. Yes, he says on a mule, a donkey. 
in, in the, 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 the great kings, would, when they were preparing for war, would go be on a great war horse, a great powerful horse. But when they, when they were coming to a city and they wanted to speak peace, they would ride in on a mule, calmly, peacefully. David says, I want my son Solomon to, to take, take over this kingdom with the image of a mule. Symbolic, very symbolic. You know, in the, in, in the 2016 Baltimore mayoral election, there was a candidate who sought to portray as, himself as a simple blue-collar guy. Um, he did this by um, riding around on a pickup truck and having advertisements where it was a pickup truck. Um, and uh, he, 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 that was his claim to fame. That was his little stick there. And he didn't come close to winning. Um, <laughs> that, that's probably pretty fortunate because the rumor has it that he really wasn't that blue-collar poor. He was a really pretty rich guy. And uh, the pickup truck was simply a political gimmick. Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, was not a political, political gimmick. <laughs> Jesus' entry in Jerusalem was because he came as the king of peace to bring peace and reconciliation between us and him. His death was about true greatness, serving us that we might have peace with God. And so with the hymn writer, we say all glory Lord and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. Thou art the King of Israel. Thou art David's royal son, who in the Lord's name cometh the King and the Blessed One. The company of angels are praising thee on high, and mortal men and all things created make reply. The people of the Hebrews with palms before thee went, our prayer and praise and anthems before thee we present to thee before thy passion. They sang their hymns of praise to thee, now high exalted, our melody we raise. Thou didst accept their praises, accept the prayers that we bring, who in all good delightest, thou good and gracious king. He's a good king. He's a gracious king. He's a great king. And he has served you. So serve him. Worship him. Take some time this week to reflect on Jesus as your king who serves you and who calls you to serve him. Meditate on his love for you. That while we are yet sinners, he died on a cross that we might have life. Ask him to open a door that you might share that with somebody else this week. You might invite them to, to know the simplicity of Good Friday, that it could be good for them. Serve him. Share him. Worship him. Let's pray. Oh, God, familiar passage. Familiar application. We're called to be people who serve you. Maybe not get lost in, in the simplicity of it. May we, in our hearts, in our wills, say, yes, I will be your child. I'll be your son and daughter who will bring others to know that you are their king. Let this passage points to our hearts and our motivations and our hunger for honor and glory. Lord, may, may we glory and boast only in you. We're, we're really nothing. We're, we're, we're really nothing. But you are all. 
And you are all that we need as we sing. So make this, this passage real in each of our lives. I pray for anyone who's here today who, who, is, who the gospel's becoming clear to them that it's really not about their works and about, not about the things they do. It's simply trusting in what was done for them on the cross where you paid the penalty for our sins and we get to go free. Lord, I pray if that's new for someone, they would make a commitment to Jesus Christ. But for all of us, may we reflect on this Passion, this passion Week on your death and your rising that we might live newness of life in our world. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.